Welcome to the Global Luxury Real Estate Mastermind with me, your host, Michael Valdez. Today, I actually have the great pleasure of having a good friend of mine on the show, Jim Park. Uh, Jim is a real estate professional. He and I have known each other for about a decade, and it's going to be a fun and great conversation. Jim, welcome to the show. Thanks, Michael. Thanks for having me on your program. Absolutely. So we were just in uh, very cold Chicago three days ago, and I know that you're back in your home in California, so I'm glad you've got a little bit of thawing out now. Yeah, definitely it was uh, a cold uh, few days there, uh, but, um, <laughs> but it, it warms my heart that we were doing a lot of good things when we were That's right. in Chicago. For, yeah, for we're going to touch on that. Yes, absolutely. We'll touch on that soon. But I want to just start with the basics. You know, you're, you and I are good friends, and uh, you're an incredibly well-respected leader in the real estate industry. And I just um, wanted, wanted you to sort of just tell my listeners how you started in the industry and uh, really where you got to today. I know that you are the founder and partner of Mortgage Collaborative, which is an organization focused on small and medium-sized lenders that create sort of innovative mortgage solutions for consumers. Um, but tell me how you actually started and your trajectory and where you got to, to be where you are today. Well, Michael, I'm very old, so that would take a long time. So I'm going to do a very <laughs> shortcuts, highlights, <laughs> a cliff notes, <laughs> a cliff note version of that. Um, you know, I first started out my um, I went to Washington, D.C. to uh, study uh, for my grad school. Uh, so I, I, I love the energy and all that is Washington, D.C. This is way back when we're, when it was less divisive than it is today, unfortunately. Right. Um, but, you know, I really fell in love with that city and, and the impact you can have as an individual, as a young professional. Uh, so I actually started out after grad school as I worked as a lobbyist on uh, low income, affordable housing, economic development issues for cities and states throughout the country. And I did wow. that. I really fell in love with the whole idea of helping and supporting um, um, you know, the cities that were really downtrodden that needed the help building affordable housing and economic development um, opportunities for their residents. Um, and in many ways, that experience for me um, helped me to kind of think about ARIA and other organizations that I helped start over the years. Um, um, back then, there were very few, um, when I walked the, Congress, uh, the halls of Congress, there were very few individuals that looked like me uh, there. Um, and the Asian American community was not present in any kind of way. And I always thought if there were opportunities for me to support and help and foster organizations that can support the Asian American community in a bigger way, I always thought to myself, I'll figure out ways to do that. And, uh, and so I, I left the, the, the job um, uh, as a young lobbyist, uh, star-eyed lobbyist, and then I, I actually uh, worked uh, in the Clinton administration in the housing department. Um, so I kind of continued at my housing work, uh, went to FHA, Federal Housing Administration, um, went there. Then I, after spending four years uh, uh, in the administration, I then went to Freddie Mac uh, to do some work there. Um, and that's where I actually had some resource, uh, access to some resource to be able to fund a lot of different organizations 
uh, startup of a lot of different organizations, several Asian-American organizations. One was ARIA. Um, back then, I, I gave the organization its first grant to get off the ground, uh, and subsequently, I got much more involved in the kind of the, the development of it um, on, on a day-to-day basis, but that's how I started. And then later on, I uh, left D.C., went to California to start different businesses, um, uh, mortgage banking. Um, we had a uh, REO, real estate REO services business, um, and uh, more recently, uh, about seven years ago, started this mortgage collaborative. So D.C. policy wong to a kind of, I guess, sort of semi-entrepreneur now, um, but, uh, you know, but have focused mostly on, you know, people who are underserved and, and try to figure out ways to support those, um, those people that need an extra help, um, uh, to, to kind of, uh, to access homeownership and so on. Which is, which is really sort of tireless work that you've done. And I've always admired that about you and have been really, you know, you're, we're one of those players in the industry that has always had that, that foresight of really wanting to fight for the underdog to figure out how to do that to really engage people and getting that message out there and really trying to get home ownership into the hands of as many people as possible and really in as many uh, diverse groups as possible and I think it's something that is so amazing of you as a leader really in the industry and then really that full circle of then going into that entrepreneurial spirit, always keeping in mind what your core um, really calling was, and then coming back around and continuing that practice even after all these years. And so you talked about ARIA, which is the, um, the um, Asian uh, Real Estate Association of America, and you have really built, uh, well, you, you were one of the founders, as you said, and, and, and really helped guide the uh, leadership of that. And, um, you know, I, as, as, as you well know, with your convincing uh, skills, I've gotten very involved with ARIA as well um, as uh, chair of the ARIA Global Advisory Board. And then I'll be the host of your Global Luxury Summit this year. Um, so tell me a little bit about ARIA, what that vision was, and how that came about. Yeah, I, I'm happy. To, well, one, um, we're lucky to have you um, as an organization involved in this way. Uh, and, um, and it's really made up of a lot of amazing people. Organizations don't exist without people. And we've been very lucky as an organization over the years uh, of having people that are committed, passionate, they believe in the cause. Um, you know, and my my, my um, kind of belief around all of this stuff is this. I think it's kind of founded on my immigrant roots. I, I immigrated to this country when I was 10, and I recall kind of how much of a struggle it was for my parents. Didn't know the language, um, didn't really, you know, my dad worked as a, as a gardener, my mom was a seamstress. I mean, there, so there was you know, struggles, right? And sure. and somehow they pieced together enough down payment, all that bought a home and all that over the years and looking at how, what it takes to access the American dream sort of a, is, is a, both a challenge and an inspiration, right? So, um, so I, I really got kind of passionate about those things. And that's why I think a lot of people 
um, you included and other people within ARIA, that's why they are so passionate about this organization because they kind of live that challenge. And Asian-American home ownership rate uh, traditionally has been lower than the general population um, and the white community. Um, now, it's been higher than the other minority community, but still, it's still there's still gaps to be closed for everyone. Right. And um, so that's why we started the organization, which was a very much a mission-driven organization. What can we do to advocate for policy changes, business practice changes, and education of professionals so that we can make homeownership accessible to more people, more Asian Americans, but all people, frankly, of all backgrounds, all ethnicities. So what can we do to, to support that? That's why we started it. And it's obviously have over, over the years have evolved into a lot of other things, including global luxury, um, which you're, you're going to be chairing the, that uh, event, the biggest one ever, right, Michael? <laughs> uh, in Chicago, no pressure but, whatsoever. Um, <laughs> right. I, I, I know you, I know you, you can take the pressure, so that's, that's why we <laughs> But you know what's interesting yeah. to me is, is, is the fact that with Aria, because we were just talking about global luxury and, you know, the idea that this was, um, this organization in its, at its core was really um, started as a way to advocate for home ownership for a minority group that was falling short of where that home ownership um, uh, percentage should have been. And what I think is interesting is that as it leads into the global luxury part of it, it's the fact that that Asian consumer has become so important in the real estate industry on all price points and all levels. And I think that ARIA has become a voice for the community as a whole, where you then are now being um, really sort of courted by a lot of outside organizations that want access to what you've built. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, you know, you know, the interesting thing is it, it, evolution of an organization, as you say, you know, we talked about, you know, started out as much more of a mission driven, supporting uh, the people people in need, uh, closing the homeownership gap, to something that looks at the whole breadth of what the Asian American community represents today. And, um, and just kind of even reflecting on why we started Global Luxury Summit, we didn't have it um, in the beginning of the organization. When we started in 2003, it was much more about, you know, educating people about the Asian consumers, how to help them, how to break down barriers. Um, and as you know, from 2008 to 2012, 13, we were sort of in the midst of that whole uh, foreclosure crisis and everyone was focused on that. And, and certainly a lot of our members were, uh, we, uh, were working in that field, in that sector, because they had to stay alive, because that's, that was the main business in many of the markets our community was in. Um, but we, in 2011, really, uh, 2012, we decided to make a pivot in a big way because what I saw in the organization was, yes, we were dealing with people lowering to mid middle market, foreclosure, all that. But we also had a group of people that were focused on the luxury business despite the marketplace. Um, they were focusing on global real estate. Many of our members, a, a large percentage of our members, were not born 
in the United States. They were born elsewhere. They had roots elsewhere, and they did business with people from all around the world because of that, because they could speak the language, they understand the culture, all of those things. And when we saw that, we thought, you know what, there is not an organization that is focused on global business and luxury business in the fullest sense. Uh, we wanted to create something that was unique, uh, that brought people at the highest level together. And so in 2012, we launched the Global Luxury Summit. Um, as you may recall, it was in New York City, yes. at the Waldorf, and we did a lot of great events, you know, uh, rang the bell down at the New York Stock Exchange. And it was, it was a great event just to kind of show that our community could be engaged at the highest level. And that event, frankly, has been one of the signature events for the organization um, for, for many, many years now. And, you know, and, and that it is so true. And it's amazing to see the amount of people that rally behind that event that has become actually one of the top industry events to, to, to go to now. And it's, uh, and it's really interesting to see that. It's interesting to see the support that comes, not just from the real estate community, but the sponsorship levels that come from the financial community, from other sectors, all of those people that are trying to get a hold of the voice that you are, are starting and, and leading with things like global luxury and this event. And I had a, um, a thought as to how you would define luxury, Jim, because I think it is, um, it, you know, we throw that word around, right? And, um, and so sometimes, you know, there's a concept that luxury equals, um, equals time. And it's the idea of uh, the luxury of getting your time back because you're dealing with a higher price point. So you're working less hours in order to make more money. And so that sort of caveat of, of this, this concept of time is really synonymous with luxury and it's not necessarily a price point. So I wanted to sort of see what your uh, thoughts were on how you define luxury because you've done now for the last six or seven years, this summit um, revolving around global luxury. And obviously this podcast is called Global Luxury. And so I'm just trying to um, get your thoughts as to what you think that means for you. Yeah, luxury can, I mean, obviously luxury can be defined in a very kind of pragmatic way, right? Price sure. point and, and so on. Um, you know, and, and we have a luxury designation uh, course at ARIA, and, and those are pe people who, who take those classes. They have to demonstrate that over the last, you know, a year, they have to sell at least two to three homes that are at the top 10% of their market. So a New York, so if someone's working in New York, top 10%, that price point is very different than someone who works, let's say, in um, in, in Des Moines or where have you. So they're, but right. if they're at the top 10%, that's the top 10%. But it's also, in my view, just as you say, it's both time and a mindset and sense of a lifestyle, right, in my view. Uh, so people who are focused on luxury create a different experience for their clientele. Uh, they work with them in a different way. And in some ways, what I would hope over time is that we treat all consumers in that same way, in that special way that, that a lot of uh, global and luxury consumers 
are uh, have, have gotten used to, right? And because you know when you're when you're buying high end prices or you know at, at, you know if you're looking at you know global buyers, as you know, they, they tend to buy uh, homes, particularly out of China and other parts of Asia. The average price of homes purchased by uh, Asian buyer from Asia, not Asian Americans in the U.S., but right. uh, Asian buyer is usually about fifty to seventy five percent higher than most domestic purchases. So it's higher end prices. Uh, so they try to cater to that and all that. But I, you know, what I would hope for over time, and it's, I think this is a discussion that in this industry has to really kind of deal with this, is we have to create a value add in this new technology-driven environment. We have to be smarter. We have to know, uh, give better advice to our clients. We have to give them a special experience like we would a global luxury buyer. And that's, but but my view is that's that's what I see when I look at the top tier uh, members at Aria, they treat their clients in a very different way. Uh, they they really hand in glove, and, and they just really take care of their all their needs. And and that's what I think this industry needs to continue to push for all consumers uh, going forward. You know, you touched on some good points there. You talk about the idea that technology is really taking over our industry. And it's that sense of remembering that this is always a person to person uh, exchange. It is always a personal relationship that happens here. And, you know, it was interesting because you start talking about luxury with uh, a sense of an experience. And it really is that um, journey that we take a home buyer through, whether they be a domestic or foreign buyer, where you come in and you want them to have that experience and create the, the sense of being an advisor. And it's always that sense of, um, you, you know, advisor of whomever that client is whether it's that sense of it's it's a hundred thousand dollar purchase or it's a hundred million dollar purchase it's the idea that that sense of experience should be something that to your point should be something that is delivered and luxury is defined not by a price point but really by an experience and i think that's a that's a beautiful way to express that yeah, I mean, it's 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 the whether you're you know the only thing you could afford is a hundred thousand dollar home or a hundred million dollar. That's it's a big purchase for you know it's it, relatively speaking it's it's all relative. It, it's a big purchase. Absolutely, right? it's, it's a big purchase, and that experience should be a good experience, something something that that people feel good about uh, internally, um, and it's sort of and we have to respect that and we have to kind of nurture that experience people are going through. We also know, I mean, we do also know, as you know, Michael, you, you're in the middle of all of this stuff, um, that technology is going to, you know, probably move certain segments of the market into, who knows, whether the iBuyer or other, other um, more uh, technology-driven, uh, lower-cost solutions. Um, and, and so I think for, to maintain the relevance in this business for the long haul, we have to create an, a, a added value that's that that technology or, or these other processes can't replace and that's that and you talk about this that human connection human touch and giving people the advice that, that sometimes an algorithm in 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 a website or whatever can't give you and Absolutely. that's what we need to kind of that's what we need to work on as an industry and that's what we need to and frankly that's what we spend a lot of time as you know 
our global luxury summit. I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot of people who are top of their game, interacting, sharing ideas, supporting each other and sending, frankly, it's, it's an opportunity to build referral network uh, among different folks around the country and around the globe, frankly. And that's, that you can't replace that with technology in my Absolutely opinion. not. And, you know, I think that one of the really key things is that um, you and Ari as an organization really look at the world and the effects of it on a, on a very consistent basis. And so one of the things that really is fascinating to me also is, for example, the Global Congress that you do where you actually have, it's almost a summit of uh, thought leaders in different industries, economists, um, you know, global representatives outside of the United States that are market leaders in their market and really around the world. I mean, you know, recently uh, I had the honor of chairing one uh, and serving as moderator, where you had people like Gene uh, um, uh, Shi, who is the president of Homelink, that is arguably probably the largest brokerage in the world out of mainland China. Um, so I think those conversations are so important and so unique to your organization. Um, and I wondered how that was developed and your vision of that uh, in really starting from humble beginnings as this organization and to your point how it evolved but the way that it evolved now on such a global scale is fascinating to me give me your thoughts on that yeah Jim. yeah well, well one I, you did an amazing job of running uh, that session uh, our global oh, i was you know i was honored by the guests that you had on there yeah it was a lot of great people from all around the world from, from france to china yeah. to to Latin America, all throughout, and because you, you know, I just tell people it's the international business or global business um, is is unique. But it's you know, in some ways, you live in New York City or New York. Yeah. New York sometimes New York City probably has more uh, relevance or or similarities to maybe London or you know uh, Stockholm or whatever than it does to you know maybe Birmingham. Right. And so right. while we can be sitting in the same country, um, there's these bigger cities that international cities, Tokyo's or whatever, they, there is more connection to those cities than we know. And I think that's one of the things that we try to kind of break down, which is uh, understanding those markets. Obviously, right now with China, there are so many political overlay to what's happening and it's really slowed the business down from there before, because of of government control, but there's still different things. Like you still have 400 to 500,000 students from China studying in the United States still. Uh, so th there's still money here. There's money flowing here. So you have to understand those things. Uh, and these dialogues that we have uh, as part of global Congress helps to kind of peel away the mystique, the misunderstanding, frankly, in many ways. And it uh, gives us an opportunity to share with each other uh, what's really happening and how do we build those relationships that is needed and the understanding that's needed to take care of our clients, uh, no matter where they come from. And, uh, and I think that's, that's been, that's been the, the great part of kind of looking at the global trends, looking at the customs differences, 
um, but also sort of these little nuances that gives gives people a an added advantage if it's if this is a segment of the market they want to focus on. You know, to your point, I just returned from Shanghai last week, and I was at the uh, the luxury property show in Shanghai, and then I was actually speaking at the um, the Century Twenty One um, China um, convention where they had about five thousand people there. And it's interesting because at the LPS show, um, there were so many different um, uh, um, parts of the industry that were there trying to capture that mainland Chinese consumer. And what was interesting was you saw every large developer from the Middle East in the largest booths that there were all trying to get a piece of that audience with that consumer. And you start looking around and, you know, it was, uh, there was some New York brands that were there too, some U.S. brands based there. And I thought that was really clever to try to capture that. And it was interesting because it was the key cities you're talking about that that luxury consumer is still interested in. They were looking at Sydney, they were looking at London, they were still looking at New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco, all of the key cities that for a luxury Chinese consumer in this particular uh, instance, are still obviously because of the US-China trade, um, there's still a slowdown of it. But to your point, they're still there because of educational reasons, uh, sometimes for medical reasons where they want uh, better medical care. So there's other reasons for them to purchase. And I think that that is a really interesting thing that always comes about when we start talking in the Global Congress, for example, uh, the other reasons of purchasing and the idea that a, a, an Asian consumer of a certain price point is still active in certain markets around the world. No, you're, you're definitely, you're absolutely correct. I mean, if you, the thing about China is this. I mean, I, I think people forget how big the country is mm. in terms of population. Absolutely. You know, uh, what was it, 1.3 or 4 billion population. That's more than, that's more than, if you added up everyone in North America, uh, Central America, South America, <laughs> if you add everyone up, you still don't get anywhere near the population of China. It's so it's true. not even close. Right. And it's a still, it's still a country that's urbanizing, right? People, mig you know, moving in from uh, rural areas into the urban market. And so you, this industrialization of that country is huge. That's why you see, you see the kind of GDP growth and all that over these long stretches because of mass population moving in. And that's not going to stop anytime soon. Um, you know, you know, United States is a, is a mature country. We, we our urbanization process started a long, long time ago. China is still in the midst of it. So, in my view, is wealth is going to continue to grow, not only Absolutely. in China but India and other parts of other parts of Asia and other countries, other countries around the world. Frankly, not just Asia, but but those things are happening, and we have to figure out. We have to understand their the future clients needs from those countries and, and typically as you know i mean people who are buying in the u.s or you know sydney australia or other people they're it's, it's just not their 
a lot of times it's not their primary home. They're, they're, they have enough money where these are second homes or vacation homes and other things. Absolutely. So because of those things, that's a lot of times, as you know, those are driven by like referrals. People know each other. They send business uh, around. Um, and that's why it's so important. I just want to go back to why something like a global luxury summit is so critical is you're meeting people, getting to know people, um, and because you don't want to send your clients to someone that you don't know, you don't trust. And you spend two, three days with them, sitting in sessions, kind of uh, hanging out and getting to know their own personal story. That's when you get comfortable sending your business, your, your clients to someone else on the other side of the world. Otherwise, you just, you know, you know, no one's going to look at, I guess no one looks at, there's no phone books anymore, right? <laughs> but no. It's, it's wow, did you really just say that, Jim? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yellow pages. No, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> but they're not going to send someone across the world, their client, uh, sure. if they don't really know. Them. And, and that's, why, that's why I always say, you know, you know what, this is the best three days you'll spend if that's what you're focused on, right? And, um, and so I'm excited about it, and it'll, it'll be fun um, as well. And, you know, it's, uh, it's interesting because I just want to go back to one of the things you were saying. It was, I, you know, I, I had, uh, when I was in China, I went to uh, uh, Suzhou, and I hadn't been there before. And, you know, it's, uh, it's about uh, 240 kilometers outside of Shanghai, but with the bullet train, it literally took 26 minutes to get there. And it's now an incredibly vibrant city. And you're looking at this that was, it, it used to be just a very uh, quaint town. They called it the Venice of Asia. It was a beautiful, beautiful uh, city. Um, but really in the last 20 years, I'd say, it just exploded. And it's a story that happened because of the amount of population that is in China, there is so much demand for housing and for, and for investment and for needs, and they just really love real estate. And so I think you start looking at where that whole technology things, because of the technology of the bullet train coming in, now that's become a city where people commute from. And you start thinking about the fact that you're 250 kilometers away from the key major city like Shanghai, and now it's considered a suburb. And it's, it's incredible how that sort of continues to happen. And to that point where the world just keeps getting smaller if you're in that right sort of uh, audience, right? And so, yeah, you're in the other side of the world. But if you're looking for it, and that consumer that was in Shanghai at the LPS was looking for properties in New York and in, 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 in Los Angeles, et cetera, et cetera. And it's the idea that those people that were there talking to that consumer is now, to your point, that personal relationship, that step closer of saying, I feel comfortable doing business with you. No, you're absolutely right. Absolutely right. By the way, that 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 bullet train is pretty amazing. Uh, oh my Shanghai. gosh! That's like, if, if you've never done it, I mean, it's almost worth almost flying to Shanghai to get <laughs> on that thing, and it, it's like Disneyland for adults, you know. And it's so um, true. But it's it's like, but those that's what what's going to bring that economy uh, closer, and um, 
and you know, Shanghai, as you know, it's it's, it's a massive city. I mean, we, yeah. it's it's well, I don't know, probably like three times the size of New York, or exactly whatever. at least um, at least. And um, and, and but but you know, there, you know, China is an interesting situation, obviously, because communists they they can they can you know bulldoze down a neighborhood and just put a train through it uh, without you know much repercussion. You could There's do no that eminent domain there. <laughs> no. <laughs> They can do whatever they want. Uh, right. So they can build these things, um, um, you know. But 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 it's it's it does. I mean, you you get you get a suburb that's two hundred some odd miles away. You know, you in, in your head here in the United States, you go, well, what is that? That doesn't make any sense. But there, they're able to do it. You know. Um, and so, yeah. I mean, that economy is something to, certainly to look at. But I'm like, I'm actually very bullish on like. Southeast Asia as well. I think that's going to be like a big boom um, over the next number of years um, as well. And and frankly, there's opportunities like that all around the world. You know, and you have to kind of you, you have to kind of keep your eyes open. Um, I I always say you got to travel much as you can because it really kind of opens your eyes to different people and customs and and just you know getting a different appreciation for folks. Um, so if you're focused on global luxury type business. I would just say, you know what, make sure you travel, get out there, go to a couple, three countries a year and, 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 and just be a part of it. And then, and just kind of learn from that whole experience. So, um, and, 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 but at, at our global luxury, you don't have to travel overseas <laughs> to meet people from all around the world and bring everyone to one place. So anyway, that's a great plug. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, you're you're slogan. afraid that this is going to get so big anyway. We're going to have to satellite this thing. <laughs> so, oh my God, so I, I think you're going to make it larger than our national conference. I'm sure you'll, you'll be able to do that. <laughs> but you know, I think that there is a lot of uh, that sort of. Um, um, sense of what you're doing and bringing people together. And I know that ARIA, for example, are doing uh, trade missions. And so, um, you know, this year we're also doing the U.S.-China trade mission, which I think is infinitely important, where it's the understanding of culture, of the way that you approach that buyer, the way that you understand that they do business, the way to even write a contract that you know if 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 it if the if the if the offer ends in a six you're probably going to get that deal done uh you know and so right. those types of things that are such amazing nuances that without um having the guidance of really knowing what is um you know millennial old sort of cultures and traditions and ways of doing business and conducting it that has to be done with that level of respect and understanding is so foreign to someone who doesn't understand the culture. And this is such a large buying group that when you start coming in and trying to uh, be a part of this, that you really do need that guidance. No, you, you need that guidance. You need to have connections and friends in the business that are doing it. And, um, you know, uh, you can read and you can learn through classes and so on, but there's nothing really like more personalized experience and connecting with people and learning from people who have been doing it. Um, because, as you know, 
in this business, you know, you can, you, you can, there, there are maybe, you know, steps that you can lay out for people to follow to do trans close a transaction. But the fact is there's always nuances in between that if you don't really know it, sometimes that that's, that's the difference between getting the deal done or not. And Precisely. what, you know, that's what we're really trying to do, which is let's get into enough of those little nuances and details that allows you to be a superstar as opposed to someone who does okay. You know, right. and that's, that's our goal. That's our goal as an organization as, and make sure that, you know, we have top tier people uh, that are not only do well, but they can do good by helping the organization's overall mission as well. And the community. Absolutely. So listen, this is a question that I ask um, all of my guests. And so I'm going to ask you, Jim, I want you to tell me the greatest lesson that you've learned from one of your failures. You know what? I, I have so many failures in life that I, no, <laughs> I don't even know. Where you got to gotta start. start picking you know, one, right? I, I, oh boy. Um, I, I, you know what? Failure. I, I would say one, um, I would start out this way. I don't want to start too philosophical, but I would say having failures is a good thing because if you haven't had much failure, that probably means that you haven't pushed the envelope enough in your life. Right. I love that. And so take some chances. Right. And, and, Every day, I think there's something that you kind of go back and say, hey, that probably didn't, you know, whether it's personal interaction with people or whether it's business related, um, you know, you, you, you might go back and say, oh, you know what, that I probably would have done this differently. And I'm sure every day, hopefully everyone goes through that every day, kind of reevaluates how they have engaged with people, how they have built maybe some parts of their business. Um, you know, and I, for me, I, I don't know. I, it's hard to say there's failure in your kind of traditional sense. I, I would say every failure leads to other things. And so for me, it's a sort of a continuum uh, in many ways. Sometimes I go, well, there were some businesses I had where I would have said I should have doubled down on myself and I was too timid. Right? Mm. And so for me, while it was, you know, maybe from an outsider perspective, that wasn't a failure, I would say it might have been a failure because I could have done more, right? Because I could have doubled down on myself and the, and, and the trajectory of the business, and I could have made it something much different than what it ended up being, right? And so for me, you know, you know it's not a traditional description of failure because, you know, it wasn't like I was down and out, but I didn't meet full potential. So that was a failure, right? So, so some things like that, I, mean, I always tell people, you you know, you got to be, if you can't double down on yourself, trust yourself to get it done, then who will, right? So you have to have that. So for me, I would say the greatest lesson is always trust your instinct and always trust your own personal work ethic to get the job done. Uh, and, and if you don't start with that, no one else will, right? So I, I, I would, I would kind of try to live, live by that part. And that's a great life lesson. It's always one of those things where your greatest fan has to be you, right? Um, before anybody else sort of um, understands your greatness. And so I think that that is a great life lesson. So I'm gonna ask you the final question that I also ask all of my guests and they always cringe when I ask the question, um, but that's always a good thing. So <laughs> what, what legacy would you like to leave Jim Park? 
<laughs> my goal. Okay, well, so it sounds like you're. I'm like I'm I'm close to my deathbed. I mean, I feel. Yeah, well, like, come uh, on now. No. It's sort of like I know I ask everyone this, <laughs> um, but I know you're stalling. I like actually, it. Actually, yeah. You know what? I'm I'm a little um I'm a little slightly uncomfortable with the word legacy because it sounds so change too big, it. You know, uh, too too big. So for me, um, so I live for impact, right? What impact oh, I like did that. I have? What, what, what did I touch, right? So legacy, you know, I'm not, I, in, there are people who have less but legacy, people who, whose name will live on forever and ever. I don't know if that's me, but I, I would say, I would say one thing that I would point to, I hope, uh, is that, you know, like organization, just going back to Ari as, as an example, if, uh, Alan Okamoto, John Wong, and a bunch of other people didn't kind of come together. And if I didn't help help with it, volunteer over the years and all of that stuff, you know, just as one little microcosm of, you know, thing, I would say a lot of people would not have known each other. A uh, lot of uh, business connections would not have ever happened. Um, and maybe some new business ideas would have never Spunned off. Um, it's a little bit like uh, you know. Now, now we're we're close to the holiday season, Christmas, sure. and it's like wonderful life. It's like it's a wonderful life. If some something didn't exist, how would life's trajectory? How would things have changed? And I always think about that. I was like, I, I, would I have ever met the great Michael Valdez? No, would, would I have? Ever, <laughs> no, it's true. It's true. So would I have met you know the hundreds and thousands of people? If without an organization like that, so I hope, in some ways, the 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 not the legacy, but the impact we've had is that I hope people understand that these organizations that we spend time on, um, blood, sweat, and tears towards, uh, have a an impact on relationships and people that might have, might not have ever crossed paths, you know. And so that I hope uh, would be one of the things. I don't know if I, you know, I, I hope I contributed to that, that, that new set of relationships and new trajectories and history that, that, that comes about because of an organization like ARIA. So that's, I hope that's something like that is uh, what I've had some impact on um, uh, for years to come. And I can say that it's already happened. And, and I think that your humility is one of your greatest traits and you have actually changed so many people's lives really with the 17 years plus that the organization has been in existence and all of your other efforts that you've done from early on. So um, I can say that it's a pleasure to call you my friend and it is really an honor to have had you on the show and I really thank you for your time, Jim. Michael, thank you so much for being my friend, being such a great leader in the industry, and um, you know having this great conversation with you uh, today. Thank you again, Jim, and thank you to all of you. This is the Global Luxury Real Estate Mastermind with me, your host, Michael Valdez. Thank you very much for joining.